right, guys, let's go Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats, little paperback ones, little cheap ones. Uh, but if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. Uh, the re- reason for that is incredibly simple. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of super important things. Uh, he uses it to change us and, and to breathe life into us and give us energy for the day and teach us the way uh, that we should walk and all these kinds of things. But chief among the great reasons that God gave us his word is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We wholeheartedly, unapologetically want you to know God here. And so if the Bible's the tool that he's going to use to do that in you, we want to get your nose in a Bible as often as possible. And so if you don't have a Bible out of this place, that's a problem. And so take that physical one home, start reading it. It'll be the biggest win of my week. Romans chapter 11. We are on the back end now uh, of a series that we've been working on since Easter of last year. Uh, we're, on, we're coming up to Easter. It's going to actually lead us up to Easter again. Uh, but we started this all the way back in the Easter. Uh, we're calling it Just and Justifier. Uh, those, are, those two J words are titles that God uh, calls himself in Romans chapter 3. Uh, and we're taking, it's, a, it's basically a slow-ish walk through the book of Romans. Right? And I say slow-ish because the book of Romans could take much longer than a year. It's like some of you are like, really? Yes, absolutely, really. Uh, I know some guys who have taken three, four, five years to walk through the book of Romans. We're taking it more like a, like a Concorde jet across the Atlantic Ocean. We'll get there soon. Um, but Romans, if for the uninitiated, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in about 56 AD, is what we think, about 56 AD, uh, to the church in the city of Rome, which is why it's called the book of Romans. Uh, Christians, we're, we're really bright at naming things, and so the church at Rome, they got the name Romans. Um, it's a letter that's essentially a missionary support letter. In chapter 15, Paul tells this church that his plan is to take the gospel on past them. We think he's in Corinth when he's writing this. Uh, So Rome is to the west of them, and he wants to take the gospel, start planting churches in Spain, on west, beyond them. And Paul sees this Roman church as an ally in what he's doing. And so he writes this letter, writes this letter to basically ask them for help in getting to Spain. Uh, But he doesn't just like come out and say, hey guys, we're on the same team. How about you give me some money? No, 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 no. Paul casts a massive vision, a gigantic vision for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others like him to take that gospel to the nations. It's kind of a see what God is doing, don't you want to join in what God is doing kind of thing. And it is an absolute masterpiece. Paul calls on God's people to take their gospel responsibility seriously and he asks the church at Rome for help is widely considered to be Paul's magnum opus, the greatest thing he ever wrote. And Romans can feel daunting. It's kind of a thick book for New Testament standards, or at least for the letters. It's kind of hefty, and there's some really dense theology in there. But dense doesn't have to mean scary. The picture that, the word picture that we've been trying to use to kind of wrap our heads around this monster of a thing is that of a skyscraper, Right? Skyscrapers are, are, are a feat of engineering. Uh, you've ever stood at the base of a skyscraper and looked up, you get dizzy, right? You just can't take it all in. And so uh, if you try to swallow a skyscraper whole, it's going to go badly. But how's the phrase go? You eat an elephant one piece at a time, right? And so uh, what, we've been, what we've been talking about is that a skyscraper, it's built in stages. You don't just plop a skyscraper on the ground and walk away and go have some lunch. 
There's a plan. There's an intentionality. There's, there's a trajectory to the work. You build this piece and make it solid. Then you build this piece and make it solid. And then you build this piece and make it solid. And so as you work yourself up, yes, it takes a long time, but you're eventually left with a massive, massive deal. And that's exactly what Romans is. Paul has taken his time so far. He's been slow in the process, but he's been building and building and building and building, and we're just now starting to peak above the rest of the skyline. He's shown us that God is good and perfectly righteous altogether. He's also shown us that that we have trampled upon God's righteousness and rejected him. And now all sinners, all men, without excuse, to use his own words. He's also proven abundantly so that, that a just God must do something about this reality. He must move to judge sinners, to punish sinners, or actually he's an unjust God and he's failing in his character, or at least the character he claims for himself. But Paul has also shown us over and over again throughout this letter that God stands ready to justify the ungodly. And if you're wondering how like, he could do that and still fulfill his justice, the answer is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. God, God shows mercy upon sinners, not, not because we have anything to offer back to him. There's, there's nothing he needs or wants from us. You can't position yourself in such a way as to please him or impress him or cause him to question, maybe I ought to do something here. But through the death of Jesus on the cross, God pours out his perfect justice on his son rather than on you. That's the gospel. God doesn't turn his back on justice for just a moment so he can give you some, some grace, give you some mercy instead. No, the, those whom the son died for are reconciled because the debt has been paid in full. There's no longer anything separating them. And so now he calls on his people to respond to him in faith. Or as Paul said last week in chapter 10, Call on Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Paul's point last week, last week was to hold up the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel call and say, what are we going to do with it? It's not some twisted spiritual pathway to greater enlightenment. That's what a lot of the world's religions call you to, right? Do this, unlock this door, do this, do that. All right? It's not some twisted spiritual pathway to greater unlock it, uh, uh, enlightenment. There's not some secret door that you've got to unlock to greater understanding or whatever. It's the laying down of your arms and pledging allegiance to King Jesus. Or in Jesus' own words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But there's a logical flow here, right? We're building a skyscraper. And so chapter 10 that we looked at last week comes right on the heels of that really, really dense chapter 9 that we looked at two weeks ago, right? All right. Uh, Paul was in the middle of answering a question. Do you remember what the question was? What about the Jews? That's basically the, the, the question in a nutshell. What about the Jews then? Like if, if the gospel call really is to simply follow Jesus as Lord, then, then what about that group of people over there in the corner that God made a lot of promises to? What about those guys? They didn't know Jesus' name yet. What about, what about those guys? He said he would do this, and he said he would do that. What about the Jews, right? They're his blessed covenant people. I mean, he made a lot of promises to Abraham's descendants, right? 
Did God just, you know, like change his mind? Did he get tired of them and decide to take his plan in a different direction? In chapter 9, Paul makes it clear that not everyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham is a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Faith is what God is looking at, not bloodline. And Paul points to example after example after example in in Israel's Old Testament story to, to show that that has always been God's plan to save some out of the larger whole. It's always been his plan. He also makes it clear, abundantly clear, that it's God's prerogative to decide who those some are. Because, you know, like, he's God. And Stephen's not. And the discussion is over. <laughs> and I told you a couple weeks ago that one of the reasons that, that Paul is, was asking this what, what about the Jews question was because of the audience that he's writing this letter to, right? Uh, the, the church at Rome, or specifically the multi-ethnic church at Rome. All right, uh, most of the churches you hear about in the, New, in the New Testament were started by and led by, not all of them, but most of them were started by and led by Jewish background uh, Christians. Uh, both Jews and Gentiles were being saved. Both Jews and Jew- Gentiles were uh, stepping up into uh, service in the church. And if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have a church background, Gentiles is the Bible's word for non-Jewish people. All right? So both Jews and Gentiles are being saved. Both Jews and Gentiles are stepping into service in the church um, and so that's, that's definitely happening, uh, but the leadership of each of these churches leaned, at least the demographics leaned, heavily Jewish background because, well, they had a bit of a fast track in like understanding what was going on, right? Uh, the, the very few that did respond to the gospel did so before the Gentiles had ever even heard about Jesus. They got in the door early, right? And when they did, they were sitting on top of a couple millennia of a theology. It kind of made sense. A lot of things in the Old Testament suddenly were understood, right? And so they kind of had a fast track to stepping up into leadership. And this is the case for most of the churches uh, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, except for the church at Rome. Except for the church at Rome, because in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius there was a rebellion among Jews in the city and he decided, yeah, I just don't want them here. And so he expelled all the Jews out of the city. And essentially, or virtually overnight, all the Jewish influence in this church vanished. And like any healthy church, people stepped up into those roles. Gentiles stepped up into those roles. And so this church began to take on a different taste, a different flavor. It had a different culture driving it. And you fast forward five years, Emperor Claudius dies, and like a lot of times, the next guy doesn't like his laws, so he undoes them all. And the Jews start trickling back into the city of Rome. And we think that Paul wrote this letter one to two years after that occurred. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you've got a church that's now led by Gentiles with a quickly growing Jewish population, and there's some, there's some conflict there, right? There's some conflict there. And if you're writing this letter, if you're writing this letter, if you're Paul and you got the pen and you're going, okay, I want to see this church be successful. I love them. I want good for them. I want them to succeed here. What's the next thing you're going to tell them? Because, I mean, you just told them, you just told them that it's always been God's plan to save some of the Jewish people but not all of the ethnic Jewish people. Like, what do you need to tell them next? If it's me, 
If it's me, the next thing out of my mouth is slow down and pay closer attention to what I actually said and don't hear what I didn't say. You ever written a letter like that? Make the statement, it's like, I know you probably think this, here's what I mean, right? That's what Paul is doing here. Paul's going to clarify himself, clarify himself, and make certain that they're not hearing the wrong thing. So let me show you what I mean in verse one. Romans 11, verse one. Paul asks the question that probably many others are asking. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And so what does he say? By no means. Some of your translations may say, may it never be. It's the same emphatic phrase he's said over and over again throughout this letter so far, right? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. All right, so if the question is floating around in the back of your mind right now, did God reject his covenant people? The knee-jerk answer from the Apostle Paul is, no, because I'm standing here. I'm a Jew, Obviously, he has not rejected them. If, if God had rejected this group of people, none of them would be saved. And here I am, so that's obviously not true. Not only am I a descendant of Abraham, guys, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I know my family tree. Before we get into anything else, there are going to be a lot of things throughout chapter 11 to clarify this answer. But before we get to any of those, the fact that Jewish background Christians are Christians at all is testimony that God loves them and wants them in the kingdom and that he has already saved some. In fact, I said a moment ago, right, that most of these churches leaned heavily Jewish background in their leadership because they were the first ones to come to salvation. God did that. Like that, that wasn't their doing. It wasn't some accident. It wasn't because something made sense to them that didn't make sense to other people. God did that. They didn't wake up one morning and decide to reject their families and reject their culture and reject their whole religious structure for a new one just for kicks and giggles. God awakened their heart to something. He awakened their heart to see the truth of the gospel and to, they responded to Jesus in faith. Paul and those like him, all his fellow Jews, are proof, proof that God loves the Jews. Rejected them? No. No, not even close. By no means, he says. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he, what? For new. It's an absurd thing to even think about. There may only be a handful of ideas in the Bible that are repeated more often than God keeps his promises. It's all over the place in the Bible. God doesn't fail. He doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. That's never happened for him. He doesn't try his best, but you know, he's got all these outside circumstances that are a restraint on what he can do. Guys, I tried real hard, but you know, this thing over here happened and I didn't see it coming. That's never happened for him. God doesn't fail. He never will fail. Sorry, guys, it's just outside of my control. One of the most blasphemous things you could think. Paul says that God foreknew his covenant people. We talked about that word a few weeks ago. Well, actually, a couple months ago now when we were in chapter 8, I think it was around Thanksgiving, uh, that, that, God, that God's eternal plan was to love them and provide for them, to call them his own. He foreknew them. So, um, where are they then? 
Like if God keeps his promises, why ain't this place full of Jewish background people? Right? We'll look at the rest of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars and, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. All right, so Paul links two moments together here, right? Uh, the first story is the story of Elijah in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. Mount Elijah on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Um, if, if you don't have much of a church background, here's the story. God's people, Israel, the nation of Israel, are in utter sin. They're, they're, they're just walking as far away as they can. They're led by an evil king named, named Ahab, and he's got an evil queen named Jezebel. And even if you don't have a church background, you've heard the name Jezebel, and you know you're not supposed to name your daughter that, right? Right? Jezebel was the original OG. She's the, she's the evil OG, right? Jezebel was a nasty woman, right? Elijah has shown God raises up a prophet named Elijah to deal with this wicked and disobedient people. He raises up a prophet named Elijah, and Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Hundreds of them up on Mount Carmel, right? And they, they get their altars together, and they, 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 they build their altars, and they cut up a bull, and they're like, hey guys, hey, they pray to their God, and they cut themselves, and they sing, and they dance, and they pour out wine, and they do all this stuff. It's a drunken haze of idol worship. It's a terrible scene, but, uh, but Elijah lets them run. Ask your God to light the fire, right? And then nothing happens. Then Elijah goes off and prays. Humbly asks God, God, would you, for the sake of your name, would you? And God lights his own fire. And then, and, and then all the people watching, Elijah has them kill, slaughter all the prophets of Baal. Cute little children's bedtime story, right? Man, the Bible's fun. And if, if you're a pastor, man, that, that's kind of bread and butter right there. I mean, that's a good story. Like, like if you just want to read that story, that's fine. But man, when it's time to preach the faith story, that's the, that's the one you want to aim at, right? Elijah trusted God, he called on God, and God did what God does, right? God showed his power, he flexed his muscle, and everybody saw it. Like, shame on those prophets of Baal. God is God, Baal is nothing, right? What a story. And then immediately after that, sun doesn't even go down. Report gets back to Jezebel. She wants to kill Elijah. And what does Elijah do? He skedaddles, man. Tail tucked between his legs. He runs away because Jezebel wants to kill him. He, he runs a couple hundred miles, we think, south and hides in a cave on the side of Mount Horb. The mighty prophet of God scampers away with his tail tucked between his legs. And God comes to him in the quiet of the cave. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing? And what does he say? 
Oh God, I'm all alone. I'm the only one who stands up for you. Nobody supports me. I don't know what to do. Don't lie, you prayed prayers exactly like that. What does God say? Hush. See, Elijah forgot what God had just done, right? Completely forgot what God had just done. Even if Elijah is all alone, God doesn't need Elijah to have help. Elijah's Elijah's got God, therefore Elijah is on the winning team. Right? Secondly, God tells him, hey, listen, numbskull, I've got 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. You don't know about them because I haven't told you about them. That's a Stephen Woodard translation, but I think you get the point. Basically, God tells him, what I'm doing, what I'm doing goes far beyond what you even know. You have no idea, Elijah. So how about you play your role and I'll play the role of God. I've got it, thanks. That's the tone there. second story that Paul links here is the story of the remnant. You might be familiar with that story, maybe not. A few hundred years after Elijah's story, same situation though, God's people are walking in sin. This time it's the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Kingdom of Judah is taken by the Babylonian army. God raises up the Babylonian empire to bring judgment on his own people. So Jerusalem is leveled. The temple is destroyed. Most of the people are killed, but many of the ones who aren't are taken off into slavery about a thousand miles away in Babylon. God's people are absolutely decimated. It's an act of God's judgment. That's not everybody's story. Yeah, many were killed and many more were carted off into slavery, but some people got to remain in the land, right? A remnant. It's not because those, things, those people had done anything to please God. It's not because they were more righteous than their sinful neighbors who got carted off. It's not that they unlocked the box to getting to hang out in the promised land. They weren't more righteous than anyone else. God chose to preserve his people and chose to preserve the promises he made to his people in spite of his people. That's the story. And he did so. He accomplished that by leaving them, some of them, in the land. The remnant is yet another in an Old Testament story, story after story after story. But the remnant is yet another Old Testament story uh, that's proof of God's great faithfulness to his people in spite of the faithlessness of his people. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul points to that remnant and says, hey, God hasn't forgotten about his faithfulness. He still keeps his promises He hasn't changed his character. He hasn't become a different God. God is still faithful. But that remnant was then and is today a product of his grace, not works, not of merit. You can't earn right standing with an infinitely holy God because you are neither infinite nor holy. You don't have what it takes to... Prove yourself to him. It must be given by a gracious God and and a refusal to see that. Well, it actually has consequences. Look what he says next in verse 7. 
What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were, what's that word? Hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, that's King David, right? and David says, let their, tables be, uh, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That, that quote from David, that's from Psalm 69. David is asking God to protect him from God's enemies. In other words, Paul equates the continued attempt to stand on your own righteousness as being an enemy of God. Forget you, I'll do it myself, right? But to take another step further, the verse before that, Paul says that God gave them, gave them, a spirit of stupor. I know it's been a while now, probably 10 or 11 months, um, but all the way back when we talked about chapter one, if you weren't here, we, we talked about the, the reality that the first step of God's wrath is that he gives people over to their sin. Like most people, I, I think most people start thinking that he chucks lightning bolts or gives people cancer, right? Like that's God's wrath. No, no, no. The first step in God's wrath, according to Paul in Romans chapter one, is that he takes the restraints off. He says, okay, you want that more than me? You go get it and see how that works for you. Have at it. He lets people fall deeper and deeper and deeper into their rebellion, deeper and deeper into their sin. And here Paul quotes Isaiah and he says that God gave the unbelieving Israelites hearts, or ears that couldn't hear, sorry, ears that couldn't hear and eyes that couldn't see. He gave them over to their rejection of Jesus. And so hard hearts hardened more and blind eyes got more blind. Wait a second, that doesn't sound like a covenant love to me, right? That doesn't sound very nice, forgiving, patient. You really going to tell me that God gave his people hard hearts that would continue to reject Jesus? Yeah, that's what Paul says. It's exactly what he did. And the reason that it probably confuses you, or anybody else, myself included, because we're really, really quick to forget that God is playing the long game. He's playing the long game. Look at verse 11. Paul asks the next question. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? There's that emphatic phrase again. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles, there's those non-Jewish people again, right? So as to make Israel what? Jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? All right, so I'm just going to lay all the cards on the table. Your understanding of these two verses is probably wholly dependent, completely dependent on how refined, how nuanced your definition of jealousy is. Right? We throw out the word jealous in our culture, what do we immediately race to? Immature and insecure young couples. They can't even handle the illusion of competition, let alone the real thing. 
right? So what do they do? They act on that insecurity, and they always make the problem worse, right? Isn't it fun to watch as one of the older ones you sit back and go, <clears throat> mm-hmm. they just don't get it. They just don't get it. That's what we race to when we think of jealousy. It's also why, it's also why people always balk at the idea when God says that he's a jealous God. If we carry our culture's definition of jealousy into that thought, it sounds blasphemous, right? Sounds like sin. But that is not for one second the Bible's definition of the word jealousy. Especially Paul in his letters. He's talking about a core level instinct to protect what's important to you. You see what you, being lo- what you love being threatened. Instead of sitting there like an idiot, you do something about it. You act on your love and you protect, you rescue, you save. That is a biblical understanding of jealousy. I will not sit around and watch. I will not stand by and watch what I love being harmed. I will respond. I'm going to act. You are moved, spurred to action. That's what the Bible is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about jealousy. Paul says that, that, he, that God set the Israelites up to stumble. That, that stumbling wasn't meant for failure. We read two weeks ago that, um, that in the back end of chapter 9 that Christ was the stumbling stone, right? He was the rock of offense. The end of chapter 9 ends. God set them up to stumble, but he did not set them up to completely fail. It wasn't for failure that he set them up this way. No, the purpose of their stumbling was to open the door for a little while to the Gentiles and stir some righteous jealousy in the hearts of the Israelites. A clarifying moment of what have we allowed to happen? We must act. We must respond. In that little act of I'll show them what they're missing, Guys, the kingdom of God is officially open to the Gentiles. That is a massive reality because I'm looking around the room and I don't don't see a lot of Jewish background folk in here. (laughs) Myself included. Now, it's always been God's plan to include the Gentiles in his kingdom. That starts all the way back in Genesis. We see it over and over and over again. It's repeated as often as anything else is in the Bible. His plan is to include the nations. But guys, God also ordains means for his ordained ends. It's through the hardening of Israel that he accomplishes what he planned all along to do. And so if you're a non-Jewish background follower of Jesus, guys, it's because of what God is doing in Romans 11. That's something to celebrate, right? Paul says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He, He turns his face from them for a moment and says, come on in, guys. Come on in. And as as worthy of celebrating as that reality is, and I think we're going to celebrate it for a long time in eternity. As worthy of celebrating as that reality is, Paul asks the question, how much more worthy of celebration would it be that for God to, you know, like later bring the Jews back in? Hmm, I wonder what he's got planned. 
Look at verse 13. Now I'm speaking, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify or or make bigger, enlarge my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews, what? Jealous and thus save some of them. For if the rejection, or for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports who? You. So Paul says that if the Jews' temporary rejection means salvation for the world, then that the Jews' future reconciliation is far more worthy of, of a party. That's what he says. It's a bigger party. It's like celebrating being raised from the dead. It's a big deal, right? And if God brings them back into the kingdom later, oh, don't you dare think it's going to be hard for them to catch up. Don't get arrogant here. They're they're an original piece of this thing. It's coursing through their veins, right? So so don't get cocky. We Gentiles, those those of us who are non-Jews here, we're the wild olive shoot that was grafted in. Wild olive trees, I don't know if you've ever seen one, they don't produce like cultivated trees, which makes a lot of sense. You cultivate them for a reason, right? But if you were to see a wild olive tree, you wouldn't think much of it. It's usually off in the distance. It's scraggling. There's nothing growing on it. It's not worth much of anything. Lots of time and effort, <coughs> excuse me, And energy goes into cultivating uh, the root system of of actual olive trees, the ones that people use. But the wild olive tree is just kind of off in the distance somewhere. Nobody cares about it. But if you graft them into a healthy cultivated root system, they'll flourish. Paul tells the Gentiles in this Roman church, he says, "Don't don't be arrogant towards the branches that were lopped off. God did the cutting. God did the grafting, and if God wants to, he can just as easily graft them back in. It's not a problem for him. And, and when that day comes, they'll probably flourish better than you did because they're a part of the original plant. They'll be okay. So, so don't get cocky about this. The root supports you, not the other way around. Don't ever forget that. Look at verse 19. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in, graft them in again. Verse 24, for, you, uh, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own 
olive tree. All right, so follower of Jesus, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. A proper understanding of God's bigness and a proper understanding of God's goodness and a proper understanding of his plan to save you and to save others ought to birth a healthy dose of humility in you. It is the first of many proper responses to your eyes being opened to this reality. Humility. It's his story. It's not your story. It's not my story. It's not anybody else's story. It's God's story. And he, he alone is mighty to save. He raises up and he cultivates. He prunes and he grafts and he will bear his fruit in good season. Bank on it. There's no room in the kingdom, in God's kingdom, for boasting in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. I didn't accomplish anything. It's by sheer grace alone. Look what verse 25 says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And let's call a time out there. Um, so the word mystery uh, in, in the Bible is, it's probably another one that we need to define in order to understand what Paul's about to say next. Um, so we normally use the word mystery when we're talking about something that's too big and too complicated to be understood. Well, we, we use mystery when, when it's things that we don't understand. If it's a big deal or a complicated deal, we say, oh, that's a mystery. I just don't get it. But when the Bible uses the word mis- mystery, and again, especially Paul, He's talking about something that was previously unknown, but is now being revealed. That was previously too big and too wide and too deep and too whatever, but is now being unfolded, intentionally unfolded for you to understand and to love and to celebrate. That's what Paul is talking about here. And so look back at 25 again. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. So what's the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel, comma, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, with a capital D, will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they may also they may also now may excuse me I can't read they may they also may now receive mercy dyslexia is bad guys all right verse 32 for god has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on who all. Okay, so this mystery that, that's being revealed uh, in Paul's letter here is that one day, we don't know when, but in a future time to come, one day, many, 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 many more Jews will come into the kingdom. That's what Paul says. That there will be a mass influx of Jews into the kingdom of God. And there is a ton of debate over exactly what that looks like. Like, you want to pick up a commentary, start reading through this, you have pages on these next couple of verses ton of debate and it ranges from all over the place man from from really plausible things and yeah maybe i can get behind that kind of things to outright heretical things 
Like, like some people have argued that all Jews, past, present, and future, will ultimately find themselves in heaven. Like they'll just wake up one day and like, oh, I'm glad to be here. Not because they love Jesus, but because God somehow made a different way of salvation for them. That's a problem. They point to verse 26 here and it says, Paul says all, so that means all. That's a problem though, because it completely ignores literally everything that Paul has said throughout this letter about how salvation comes. By grace through faith. Just forgets, completely forgets about the whole call on Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead part, right? That is the entrance into the kingdom. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except by me, right? There's no other way, and so that's a problem. Then there are others who want to associate modern nation state of Israel with what Paul's talking about here. And it's got some merit, but that conversation almost always quickly devolves into being more about geopolitical politics than about what the Bible says, which ought to be a pretty good indicator of how accurate a position is. The most plausible theory, though, and it's almost always the case whenever you see something confusing in the Bible, the most plausible theory is the one that simply reads the text as simply and honestly as possible. What does it say? Well, it seems to be saying that right before Jesus comes back, a bunch of Jewish people are finally going to respond to the gospel. What does that look like? I don't know. Is it going to be a big deal that everybody watches happen? Maybe, maybe not. We, we don't know, but whatever the case, their eyes will be open to God's goodness and they will say yes to Jesus' work on their behalf. They will respond to the gospel. They will repent of their sin and they will call on Jesus as Lord. They will put their faith in him. The deliverer from Zion. Have they rejected the gospel so far? Yep. Has God blinded their eyes for now? Yeah, it seems like he has. Does that make our relationship with them pretty awkward in the meantime? You bet it does. But verse 29 tells us, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They can't be undone. He will not fail in his promises to them. There is a remnant. That remnant has no faithfulness of their own. It's his faithfulness that's on the line here. But oh guys, he is mighty to save. Mighty to save. Isn't God good? Isn't he amazing? Isn't his plan magnificent? Isn't it big and beyond us and beyond comprehension? Isn't our God amazing? And this leads us to the next way that we need to respond to seeing what God is doing. The first feeling that we need to, to just enrapture us is that of humility. The second one, I guess it's awe. It's awe. We can say it another way, worship. Paul's just spent the last three chapters of an incredibly dense letter, Right? unpacking some of the biggest theology in a, a letter that's already packed with major theology. Like we haven't been throwing up marshmallows and snowflakes the last year or so, right? We've been walking through some heavy stuff. Like this is the kind of stuff that Peter looks back on and says, I hear you've been reading Paul. Good luck. We've been walking through some major stuff and 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is some of the biggest stuff in that just absolutely massive stuff. Paul gets to the crescendo of his argument here. Boldly declares that God will always keep his promises. He will not fail his people. He will come through in the end. 
And look what, he, look what he says next. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and, or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Guys, Paul explodes with worship here. That's what he does. Like you want to get Paul's motor running? Start talking about some deeper level theology and watch what he does with it. He'll get a little revved up. It'll stir some things. The more Paul talks about God's bigness, the more talk, Paul talks about God's goodness, the more he has to celebrate it. And so he calls a time out in a letter where he's arguing for why the church at Rome should help him get to Spain. Like he calls a time out in that letter and he launches into a song. And he's like, hold on guys, we gotta celebrate here. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. There is no measure to God's wisdom. You can plumb the depths all you want, you'll never find the bottom, ever. He has never needed a counselor. He's never needed somebody to help him think some things through so he can figure out the right pathway. His ways are inscrutable. It's not a word that we use much in our culture anymore. It means beyond questioning. They can't be scrutinized. His ways are inscrutable. No one has ever given God a gift that might need to be repaid. Like, like what do you have that he would ever need? Or even bigger than that, what do you have that did not first come from his good hand? It's already his. It's not a gift. You're just giving it back to him. No. For from him and through him and to him, guys, are all things. All things. To him be the glory. Not me, not you, not this church, not our country, not anything else. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what do we, what do, we do with this? How do we respond to God's word this morning, right? Well, the answer is really obvious, right? The same way Paul did. <laughs> With humility and worship. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you do that by leaning in and by celebrating what God has said about himself. He is big, he is good, and he is working all things for your good and his glory. And so repent of sin this morning and celebrate his goodness. Find rest this morning in the great and unmerited love that he has shown to the wild olive shoot. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too and you do that in the same way with, with humility and worship. But the first step of that humility and worship is repentance and submission to King Jesus. We'd call you to do that this morning. Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt of sin that you owe, that separates you from God. And he was raised to life again because he has righteousness enough to spare. And so he calls on you now to repent of sin and call on him as Lord. And you can do that today. 
You can respond to him in faith this morning. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time that we set aside each week for all of us, each of us, myself included, to respond to what God is calling us to do. Maybe it's that you're ready to become a Christian. Maybe it's that you're ready to join this church. Or maybe it's that you need to say yes to some call of mission or maybe take the step of baptism. Whatever that looks like for you, we want you to respond to God's word today. And so this is that time. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to talk and pray with you this morning if that would serve you in some way. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for chapter 11. Weighty words that are hard to understand on our own, impossible to understand on our own, but you are the one revealing the mystery. You call on us to dig deep and to chase after understanding, but more importantly, you call us to celebrate when you give understanding. You call us to respond in humility and in awe. So God, may, may you help us do that right now in this moment. Throughout the week to come, your plans are bigger than us, bolder than us, far beyond us, but you are good and you are working all things to the counsel of your will. So like Elijah, we might need to hush and do our job. <laughs> God, for those in here who know you, would you help us find our rest in you this morning? We haven't achieved anything. You are good. And in your great pleasure, you have made yourself known. God, and for those in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? You are good. Would you save people today? Father, all we have is you. All we have. That is enough. So in Jesus' name we pray.